was that a real countdown or was that a well, fake countdown? It was a fake countdown, but there was a real countdown. I just did it incorrectly. You just did it. Okay. <laughs> so we are going. There was, a, there was a fake countdown that I could hear, and there was a real countdown that I couldn't hear. Yeah, yeah. Not in your head, Jack. Was yeah. The, well, the real yeah. countdown was in your head. Yeah, Jack. Nobody saw the numbers. Nobody saw them. Um, oh boy, Dan. Uh, we were, I was just trying to find something to talk about in the news, and I just said to you, um, "Oh, this is all too sad." And you made the very astute observation, and, "Oh, you're looking for the happy news." Uh, <laughs> I, yeah, surprise, surprise! I didn't actually wind up finding any. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Pe- what are people talking about? Football, Dan, which is soccer. They're talking about impending doom. They're talking about not really the American elections anymore. People are talking about Trump. I guess we can talk about Trump for a bit. You know, this Trump guy. Did you see? <laughs> Actually, one thing that I don't know if you saw this. This is incredibly funny. Elon Musk like reactivated um, Trump's Twitter account, and then Trump was just like, "I'm not coming back." <laughs> He's like, "I have my own social media like platform now." <laughs> and it's just yeah, like, oh, okay, why great. would why would he go back?" <laughs> yeah, classic. That's a classic moment, though. Classic Trump the, moment. The failing Twitter. Failing Twitter, indeed. Yeah, yeah such is life. How is Twitter going? I've not been keeping up with that really. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe good. I, I woke up one day and everybody was talking about how Twitter was just going to completely collapse. And they're like, it's on its way out. And I suppose that's because, uh, you know, since Musk took over, a sizable portion of their workforce was either asked to leave or just fired. Um, and presumably you need a lot What's of the difference to between being fired and being asked to leave. I don't know. Being asked to leave, it's like, hey, you know, maybe one of these days, you know, get your stuff and you go. I don't know. It's, it, it is you being fired. But being I, fired I is when you actually like involved goons. Where <laughs> yeah, yeah, hired goons. <laughs> hired goons. <laughs> being asked to believe is a hired goon free firing. <laughs> yeah, but I don't know. I woke up to a lot of takes about um, everybody saying Twitter's on its last leg. It's about to collapse. It's seconds away from collapsing. To then people being like, it's too important to the CIA for them to let it collapse. So you know, who cares? I'm not going to say who cares because Twitter's fun and it's funny, but also like. Hey, maybe I'd have more free time if Twitter collapsed. So, you know, I don't really care if I'm being honest with you. Yeah, it's funny. I, I don't use Twitter. And then quite often in commentaries about it, you hear journalists going on about how it's, or, or commentators in general going on about how it's sort of sort of become this necessary democratic institution. You know, it's the public forum. It's the Agora. It's the, the Agora. <laughs> but it's, I mean, it really does seem like a mechanism for the aggrandizement of um journalists i don't know yeah and just backslap and, and, and then there's yeah. in in a, in a in a mainstream format in a in a for the dissemination of information yeah the real defenders seem the real defenders seem to be i don't know who are the I defenders mean, of twitter junk i don't know if i'm gonna go to, go to bat for twitter um i don't know i feel like also because who are journalists? Either journalists or like people whose egos are boosted about writing like think pieces for the Washington Post or whatever. Or they're like, I don't know, people who own these like, you know, allegedly like democratic institutions, the New York Times, you know, the Guardian, all of these things. And I feel like, I don't know, do they care? Because I feel like nobody actually clicks on articles on Twitter. Like, I feel like the click through rates are extremely low. Like, I feel like nobody really gives a fuck. Nobody, like people will share people's articles, but it's not like they're clicking to go read it on a pay you know behind a paywall at the washington post or whatever so i don't know who are journalists if you're a journalist <laughs> let us know, know. <laughs> yeah i think maybe i'm using a very um limited uh <laughs> prejudicial 
um, <laughs> <laughs> definition of journalist when I basically what I mean is like newspaper columnists and editors yeah. at the BBC. That's basically what I mean. Um, the only real and, I, I think maybe, maybe what grinds me actually is that these people, um, I don't know yet. These people come out as the sort of like oh me oh my faints woman faints kind of like all this 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 uh um yeah what is to be the state of journalism when twitter is disintegrating but i like and 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 worry for the democratic implications of the loss of twitter or the central position that twitter fulfills but um it's it's two-faced from those people i'm thinking of in particular your, it's your the, BBC journalists. What's exactly what's your the weaknesses and the rest? What's the um, uh, slogan for the Washington? I think it's the Washington Post. Is the Washington Post where it's democracy dies in darkness? It's like it's just Washington Post, the, the Jeff Bezos owned one. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, literally it's the one that's owned by the guy that owns Amazon, and they're all like democracy. Yeah, exactly. Jesus Christ. Yeah. What do you got? Anyway. Journalists. The only real journalists stand are sabermetricians, baseball stats people. They're the only ones out here doing real journalism. I find myself actually, <laughs> when I go to read the news, I just go to like fan graphs or whatever, like some baseball thing. And it's like, I don't even care anymore. It's like, I thought I was really, I don't know, the last two years, like ever since Joe Biden was elected, I feel like I've been like, okay, you know, wh- who's going to be next after we, after Joe, what's going to happen? You know, follow all the moves. We'll see how the midterms go, all of this stuff. And then, Ooh, you know, what are the whispers? Is Joe Biden going to run? Who's going to, is Trump going to run all of this stuff? But now that it's happening, it's just like, wow, I don't care. I really don't care about like the infighting between like, you know, Donald Trump and Ron DeSanctimonious. You know what I mean? It's just like, God, I, I just don't have it in me. Maybe it's not that I don't care. I just, there's no energy left. Yeah. Know, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's very 2016, isn't it? It's just like, I think maybe, maybe, maybe um, Trump needs to change up his act. Otherwise, it's just going to be. <laughs> oh, maybe you're speaking more broadly, but I'm, I'm like, yeah, no, I see what you mean. Whether, like... <laughs> yeah, is his act gone stale? I will say, though, as we've said on the show before, Ron DeSantis is not funny. So this is like the real cleavage in the Republican Party. The real contradiction of the Republican Party is the funny wing and the not funny wing. And if people are actually <laughs> sick of Trump's act, I don't know. He's the only funny one. Are they? Are they going to vote for the non-funny Republican? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they would never. They would never. McCain was like the least funny person on the planet. You saw what happened to him. <laughs> he like vitally needed to get Sarah Palin. In, uh-huh. Which Jesus, Sarah Palin feels like a favorite. So do you, oh do, you, do you think Republican candidates for president do they go like funny, non-funny, funny, yes. non-funny? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and then the ones that win are the funny ones. So, you know. <laughs> I love that there's like this wing of the conspiratorial like left. Well, I guess I suppose also right, just conspiratorial people in general that think that like George W. Bush was this like uber Machiavellian ma- mastermind. Maybe I've drunk the Kool-Aid, but like, yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> I do just kind of think funny, funny goober, but yeah. <laughs> horribly evil person should be tried at some sort of like just people's institution for war crimes. But, you know, you're a bit of a goober. What are you going to do? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um and people are touting this governor of California. Is what's his name? Who Gavin Newsom? Yeah, people touting him to run for the Democrats. No? The, the, the like, the like Democratic elite are. I mean, I don't know. I can't think of who's yeah, the who are people Dem- in this. Yeah, exactly. People. Yes, these people. Yes, of <laughs> all of the people love him. <laughs> the you, people are crying you, out, crying out for Gavin Newsom. Clearly, they are. If you look up <laughs> douchebag in a dictionary, all I'm going to say is I think I'll know who you find. I don't know who the. That's one. I think bad thing that's on the horizon for the Democrats is like who is the young Democrat like 
who are the young Democrats? Because it's like you have AOC, right? And then like I guess Gavin Newsom, but it's like ugh, I don't know. How old is Some Gavin Newsom? Uh, well, he looks like he's in his thirties. Okay, <laughs> I have no idea how old he is. Uh, younger than Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> if that's the if that's the benchmark. that's the benchmark, that's the that's the line. Gavin yeah. Newsom age. I'll look that up. Uh, holy shit, he's fifty five. Get the fuck out of here. Oh, my yeah. God. Adrenochrome. Adrenochrome. It, it is adrenochrome. I'm a believer now. Wow. That's actually blowing my mind. Is that actually right? Jeez, I'm going to have to look him up. <laughs> He's, uh, yeah. I don't know. People, I guess, like him or they just don't like, I don't know. I don't know. Californian politics make no sense. The big mm. news in, Calif- in California, which is finally like front page, is... Um, just how much of a disaster this year's agricultural um, outputs have been in California. And for those who don't know, California, uh, a lot of agriculture goes on there. Some of the, you know, not to brag, some of the greatest agricultural land in the world. Um, well, up until it's kind of just been, you know, pumped full of like, you know, horrible things and like completely all of the microbes and everything have been destroyed from the soil regardless you know you look at how much food comes from there it's like most of the salads for america all of the nuts uh rice is actually grown there a lot too um and obviously livestock all of this stuff but recently the la times came out with a report that said that something like seven hundred fifty thousand acres um, of farmland had to be left idle this past year because of um the drought and you know worsening like water restrictions and things like that um which led to you know some obscene number of people left unemployed and of course what we really care about the profits dan the profits were down by like almost two billion dollars this year um so yeah if any if anybody was thinking about how quickly um this stuff you know i'm not gonna not collapse or anything like that but like serious crises come about very quickly, because I don't know if it's just not profitable for these people to be farming their land, or if it is mainly just a matter of water restrictions where there is just literally no water for people to farm. Because I know that like up near Sacramento, where they do farm a lot of rice is like you are not allowed to grow rice right now, because obviously rice requires like a lot of water. And they can't let and nuts too. like, you know, you always hear about people just like uprooting whole orchards of, you know, almond trees and things like that. So one one uh, does have to come back to the critique that, you know, it's only the socialist mode that can actually like deliver on stability when it comes to all manner of things, but our food chain, especially. And uh, things not looking so good uh, for farmers <laughs> in uh, California or I would imagine anywhere. But yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, the tycoons of the big ag sector are only interested in the profits. They're not interested in feeding us <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah imagine that the people in charge of feeding us are not interested in you know feeding us um yeah so i don't know we'll just, see. just just taking their um taking their almond trees and moving to texas i guess <laughs> yeah somewhere where they somewhere where they have water none of this gavin newsom <laughs> shit where he's keeping all the water for himself in his big lawn in sacramento oh such is life well dan speaking of food systems <laughs> um we read something pretty neat this uh this for this week's episode this bi-weekly episode um it was very different to anything that we'd ever read before um but i'm i'm pretty stoked on it i think we probably will share some very similar critiques of it um but yeah why don't you fill us in this this one rocked yeah so we read um 
a sort of a sort of a what would you call it? I forget what they call it, like a position it's like paper a utopian. Or a yeah, it's, it's yeah. like it's kind of fiction. I mean, it is fiction, utopian projection, I guess. But by academics, I don't know. Yeah, they call it a discussion paper. Okay, um, <laughs> it's written by a group of Canadian, largely Canadian academics. I think it's an essay called "Visions of the Food System to Come." Um, surprise, surprise, I came across this listening to an episode of the Paul Proles Almanac. They were interviewing one of the people who wrote it. Um, uh, although I don't think extensively about this piece in particular. Um, it is written in a particular, in, in, a, in a different style, in an interesting style. I think in with the intention of being um, uh, easily engaged with. Um, it's written... From the perspective of people in the year 2050 or something, looking back on the process of um, uh, transition in uh, agriculture and the various different types of changes that they had to make and are continuing to make um, to deal with uh, the climate crisis for one, but then also all of the inherent contradictions that come from capitalist agriculture um, yeah, what did you think? Did you you get yeah. anything from it? Did you enjoy it? I think there's quite I a lot of overlap, perhaps, with them. Um, I just kept thinking back to that final final episode that we did of um, Jason Moore's book. Mm. Um, yeah, that's the closest we've come to dealing with sort of like questions of um, uh, food and uh, um, agriculture. What they're proposing is eco-ecology, I think is that what they call it? Agro-ecology. Agro yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, yeah, I, I think for the very least we can get into what that means, but I really appreciated that phrase a lot. Um, <clears throat> in terms of what I got from it, I guess, well, yeah, first of all, I did really like it. It was very refreshing to read something um, a bit easier on the uh, on the brain, I think. You know, obviously this brings up some really complicated topics and some topics that we need to engage with seriously. But um, as I said previously, I think we'll get to why this process is not necessarily one that is maybe uh, realistic. However, the, the vision of the future that they create, which is in like less than 30 years, which I find so funny, where they're like, pretty much everything's been solved. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. like, oh, cool. Excellent. I like that it all comes to a head that quickly. Um, is they're putting forward this idea, right, of what they call utopianism of process and not of form. So it's very much, this is these are ideas i suppose that you come across a lot more in like anarchist circles of you know just get out there do the mutual aid and um things will change for the better which to a certain extent is like extremely laudable right it's it's there people getting out there and starting agricultural co-ops and um basically building the world that they want to see and by the time it gets to you know to the imagined 2020 in the future um that world has come into existence and it's obviously they still talk about things that need to be fixed etc cetera, etc cetera. but i thought that was a really interesting idea this whole idea of utopianism of process because yeah it's one where they kind of i suppose a little bit skirt the question of kind of what are we you know what do we want how are we going to get there realistically and because they kind of just go to the idea of like let's just do it man and, you know, this winds up being one of the most Lasallian things I think I've ever read in my entire life, which is incredibly funny, but also like, you know, there's nothing wrong with it. Like this world that they create, it's, it's, and it's extremely important, I think, to create these visions of the future. We've talked a little bit about utopianism before, um, 
it's inherently flawed in some ways, but at the end of the day, like you, if you're a socialist, you can't just be looking to the past to be like 1917, man, let's just do that again. Or, you know, pick, you know, 1848, man, let's try that again, or pick your date and time and revolution of choice and be like, we just need to redo that because, well, for a number of reasons, but also looking to the past. And I think what this paper tries to get at a lot more is that looking to the past is not super helpful in a lot of ways. Like it's good to know it hasn't worked, et cetera, et cetera. But what they're really trying to do is put forward ideas that aren't stuck in the past and ideas that are um, useful because, you know, right wingers don't look to the future, right? They look to the past and to a certain extent, liberals do as well, right? You know, while Trump was president, it was, if only we could get back to when things were Obama. But as socialists, legitimately, I think we need to be putting a lot more of our effort into learning from the past, but then trying to project what we want into the future. And I think to that extent, utopianism is is really useful. And um, I suppose if I got one thing from it, it was just that like, for once, I'm not just like a complete doomer. <laughs> and I'm like, I was a little bit excited because the world that they like portray is like, oh my God, it sounds, this is the world we want. When we talk about wanting to just be Gerard Wynn Stanley and do digging in manure and all day, this is what we want. Like, I don't know. I was very excited by the vision of the future that they put forward. I would imagine you weren't though. Yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and yeah, I don't know how I um, feel about its utopianism or whether I'd even classify it as utopian. You're definitely right that it's very much like, here's what had to change and we just did it. And there we go. <laughs> um, or I, and to some extent, yeah, I feel a bit conflicted with it because, as I imagine you probably do as well, because there are certain elements of it, certain elements of the vision, certain aspects that um, I can very easily reconcile with, um, I suppose, what I imagine to be the political transition that needs to happen. Um, but there are some very strange things missing, right? There's, it's very much like, oh, back in the day, we were very, like... Um, uh, confrontational with the government and we would critique them all the time and then we put some pressure on the government and then suddenly they were on our side and then um, and then suddenly like now there isn't really this conflict doesn't exist but we don't really know how it happened or why it happened we sort of talk about demod decommodifying land as a as a decommodifying land but we don't really talk about what the implications of that are or what we really mean by that and um yeah, it, it it it's it's definitely, but it's, at the same time, there are very many elements that remind me of, say, how you might apply, um, like councilism or uh, the fundamental principles outline for how an economy might run. There are elements of this that really fit with that. Um, the relationship between the different producers, the sort of educational system. Um, sort of like communication of information so this is not sort of a competitive model but more of a like collaborative collective one um the various different like feedback mechanisms for information um the knowledge sharing and so like i don't know yeah there are definitely bits of it that do make sense for how i would imagine like, wanting a system like this to work i suppose yeah, it's it seemed. I mean, the one thing that's missing from this is a lack of class analysis. I, I would say it's very like of the state. And one thing that didn't even get get bought up at all, they treat farmers in this like farmers are all like working class, like blue collar, like you know, just trying to make an honest day's work. But it's like I don't know any 
like from at least back home, I don't know anyone who makes a living off of farming who's working class. You know what I mean? Like they're all either fucking feedlots run by some evil corporation or just like petty bourgeois people who exploit other people's labor. So a lot to kind of begin painting the picture of what they say happened and where they got to is that a lot of organizing took place around farmers, right? And you imagine that this kind of began taking place in our time, right? Like in the present. And they were able to like convince these farmers that, um, that, you know, things weren't going so well and that it would be a lot better for them if they were to practice agroecology, right? Um, and it falls into that trap of like, well, let's just convince the people who are doing the wrong things to do the right things and they'll suddenly stop worrying about the law of value, right? And it's like, well, I don't, okay, I don't know about that. And then, of course, they get into all of the Sally and stuff about the state. And it is exactly what you're saying, where they're like, whenever there's any question about like, how did you get here? And the narrator has to explain that. It's like, it all started with protests and then we we won the government over and it's like again you know dan we you know we know that like the state is you know comes after ideas of exchange and trade and the ability to freely exploit other people's labor all of the constitutions all of that stuff is set up well you know after those ideas are enshrined as you know your mode of production basically right and so the state is then an element of class power and that it has this class character as like do the bourgeoisie themselves right like it sounds silly but it's like this is kind of why you can't just convince the petty bourgeois farmers to just like cut it out man and practice agroecology and i kept writing in the margins here i underlined whenever i found something that was just lasallian because it literally was like and then, you know, we got our people elected or we did this and it all worked. And I mean, you know, the, the old thing to say is like all leftists are Lasallians except for me, because it's like to a certain extent, even a lot of communist thought is like still incredibly Lasallian. It's like read the goddamn critique of the Gotha program. But um, yeah, this this was this was rife with uh things that would not happen <laughs> and like yeah tr placing trust in not the best place i would say yeah absolutely yeah it's this weird kind of like slight slightly anarchist inspired but essentially liberal in its politics um thinking that sort of the reasoned argument will win out in the end um but i mean really what it's just lacking is there being some kind of like revolution in the 2030s probably which yeah. then... <laughs> <laughs> yes but that's kind of like that's their whole thing right is that it's like no no man this is utopianism as process this is revolution as process and to a certain extent that's cool because it's like you know don't fetishize revolutions like i think that there's something definitely to be said about their historical inevitability to a certain extent but not like nobody's out here well they shouldn't be out here being like yeah, man, get the guillotine out. Let's have a revolution because, like, they're almost always disasters, right? So part of it's laudable, but also, like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, like, I don't, I don't, um, I appreciate the sort of like some of the evolutionary elements of this, um, and they are like there are a few very important points which they do focus on, um, that would be sort of essential to this kind of transition, I suppose, um. The one in particular that they seem to like to focus on a lot is the necessity to bring more people into working in agriculture. So that so basically they're presenting a form of um ecological minded agriculture which is um uh 
is a, a form of agriculture that's done away with sort of like monocrop farming. Um, it's done away with the use of pesticides. It's done away with the use of um, patented uh, GMO seeds and sort of hybrid seeds. Um, and instead relies on what you would imagine like as contemporary organic or um, uh, I don't know what the, the the proper buzzwords would be, but like uh, forms of agriculture which are uh, mixed, much more small scale, much more companion planting, uh, local seeds um, that are more resilient to local conditions, um, eating locally produced food, eating seasonal food to cut down on sort of like the transportation um, uh, costs that come with contemporary agriculture and the reliance on imported food. Um, but, um, and so they so they sort of argue, I think probably correctly, that that would be, um, people sort of might have their doubts as to whether that could really produce food in the quantities that would be necessary to meet the needs of the population of the world now, let alone in 30 years' time. Um, they sort of like... Uh, I mean, everything about this text is offhand in some respects. They have footnotes, but they, they're just sort of more like further reading suggestions. So actually in the body of the text itself, they sort of like assert certain things. But we could perhaps assume it to be the case that, okay, we you could farm in this manner and um, uh, have it be productive enough, um, forgetting or accepting that in the present foods, production system there's a huge amount of waste kind of thing so maybe there is already at present there's a certain amount of um uh extra or leeway or something um but the point that they make is it would just demand far more labor than present agriculture does um i mean this is that that would be the point where you would insert your sort of like marxist labor theory of value analysis to commodity production and how it would how um how that sort of drives down the amount of labor that goes into the production of commodities. And so what they're proposing is something that would really be anathema to capitalist production. Um, I mean, we're not concerned about that. Um, <laughs> and I think, um, but you would have to accept then that you were not producing uh, food as a commodity anymore. Um, and I don't know whether they do that sufficiently um yeah i mean it's an anathema to like cap first of all i'm just gonna say i think i completely like a lot of what they say needs to happen i think it probably does need to happen it's what you're saying you know food production needs to be completely relocalized if you want to be like you know a marxist or whatever you can say maybe this looks a little bit something like getting rid of the division between town and country and you know people being a lot more involved in their production of locally sourced foods and foods that like, you know, agroecology, right? This is what they're saying. I really do like this phrase. You need to be more responsible with what you're growing, where, and what you're eating, et cetera, et cetera. But the point about labor, I think is the one is and maybe the most important point that they bring up because in this world that they're talking about, and I could absolutely see this being true if you ever wanted to like produce food sustainably and ecologically, um, the amount of labor time that's required goes way up way, way, way up. Right. And I was reading that and it was kind of interesting to me and I still don't really know what to make of it because like, this is a key component to a lot of Marxist thought, this idea that productivity goes up 
in all sectors and then you get to socialism eventually right like you know for every new proletariat you know now we're at what they just said we're at seven billion people on the planet you know the value of labor power goes down um productivity goes up automation all of these things that's kind of what capitalists are striving for even though it's kind of shooting themselves in the foot in the long run and reading the um grossman you get the idea that a kind of crass reading of grossman maybe might be that like you get to the point where labor productivity is at such a high point that man maybe just one day we just get socialism dude and i think that this raises a really important question which is well how does ecology play into that how does ecology play into this long drive that might even actually be socialist in some way to develop the means of production you know to such an extent where, you know, the amount of work that's required is very low. How do you balance that with actually needing to produce food sustainably? And um, for a lot of ways, I don't think that you kind of can. I think that labor time for most things is going to go way down after we get the revolution and everything's perfect. But for food production, after reading this, I, I really think it's got to go way up. And I don't really know yet how that plays into, you know, how you actually get there, what that process is actually like, because if our theory of, you know, the end of capitalism is based somewhere along the lines of like labor time going down for all of these different things, and it eventually gets to a point where it all, you know, goes tits up or whatever. How do you actually balance that with the amount of work that is required to produce food sustainably? Because you can't just be doing what we've been doing, as you're saying, monoculture crops, fossil fuels, and all of the machines that do this work for us patenting seeds, all of this stuff, you really need to think about it a lot more. And shy of just spraying pesticides and, you know, you know, supplements into your soil or whatever, you got to get in there. They talk about like doing weeding by hand. They talk about, um, you know, how you deal with bugs is just incredibly labor intensive. And so I don't know, I'd actually, I'd really like to like speak to kind of a Grossmanite or somebody like that to see how this fits in with everything, because to a certain extent, it's like the idea of degrowth, right? It's not just as simple as everybody needs to stop growing um, because there's going to be growth in some sectors and, you know, massive degrowth in other sectors. It's a very similar idea when it comes to labor productivity. I'm just repeating myself now, but it's like if you do really legitimately want to produce food in an agroecological way, labor time's got to go way up, way up. Like pretty much everybody's going to have to be a little bit involved, you know? which I think is cool, but how do you sell that? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I hadn't thought of there being a contradiction there because I'd sort of thought about, oh, okay, um, the necessity to have more labor be involved in um, agriculture, well, that sort of flies in the face of the law of value, but we're not really interested in upholding the law of value. So uh, what does that matter? But as you were talking, then I was just, as I quite often do, sort of like, um, I mean, uh, certainly the fundamental principles model isn't the only perhaps possible vision for what like a post-capitalist or communist society might look like, but it's our favorite reference point at the moment. Um, and obviously in that model, everything's are still valued on the amount of labor that goes into them. So even in that sort of like uh, councilist future, you're um, still perhaps looking at a situation where a greater proportion of people's um, spending power i suppose um might have to go toward uh agriculture or uh, buying food rather than it does at present um 
unless you were going to sort of like redirect collective funds towards subsidizing it or um, find yeah, some other then, method. It still comes out right of the like, because it all like, still oh, comes out of the to yeah the general labor's yeah like the, yeah, yeah. the tax the communist tax basically. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But so I hadn't really thought about the degree to which. Um, uh, socialist or communist predictions about the future are, are wedded in some ways to um, increase productivity. Um, I mean, there is, there is the other side of that equation, isn't there? There's the kind of like reducing labor spent on other things. Uh, there's a lot of wasted labor at present, both in agriculture, but in the, in the transportation of agriculture, of, of foodstuffs from all over the world to different places if you do it locally you take a lot of um labor cost out of that uh products eventual quote-unquote value i suppose um and i suppose by uh having a transition to a socialist economy you might free up a lot of labor in the sort of like so-called like bullshit jobs and the like um but yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It's an interesting yeah. contradiction that I hadn't thought about until we started having this conversation. Yeah. I mean, so much would need to be reworked for this to basically happen, right? I mean, well, maybe. I mean, I don't know. Because <laughs> you'd, you'd have to think about the proper size of a city to be able to support people in the way that it's talking about here, right? I think they kind of get into it where they're like, you know, cities like Toronto, you know, they've still got people who aren't involved in agriculture and they got to come out here and do agritourism or whatever. But um, yeah, so a lot would have to be reworked infrastructure wise and obviously the way that we use land and um, developing, like, I don't know, there are still parts of the world where something resembling a peasantry still does exist, right? And so maybe this would even be easier to implement there. You just need to implement distribution systems and rework production so that they're not just producing for the market, right? And they're actually producing for themselves and for their communities, et cetera. But somewhere like, I don't know, like, again, we come back to the problem of what are we going to do about London? Like, Jesus Christ, like, what are the incentive structures for people there to, like, develop this method of agroecology without some form of collapse because that's what I kept thinking about for a lot of this is like what they're describing just sounds a lot like there was a collapse and they're just kind of like brushing over it. Maybe that's why the narrator can't remember things back in the, in the 2020s or whatever, but it's like, how does a lot of this happen without some kind of collapse and or revolution? Like the whole world is built around, you know, I don't know if I don't eat steak, but it's like if you go down to the shop and like to Sainsbury's or something and you go look at where your steak's from, it's not from around here, right? So like all of our all of our systems to produce food for people are not geared towards doing this ecologically or like to say nothing of locally, right? Like how do you do this without many people just dying? <laughs> That is, was, it's easy to say the Lasallian stuff, right? That's why they yeah, say exactly. it. Yeah. So, well, yeah. I was just, just going to jokingly run through the list of Lasallian stuff, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you convinced yeah. the state and the corporations. That was my favorite part. Yeah. Slowly, yeah. the corporations lost power. And the withering they... away of the corporations. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's like, okay, all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, unless that government is a post-revolutionary government. Um, uh, if unless you're living in the dictatorship of the proletariat, 
I mean, maybe some of the, I mean, some of what they're describing is basically the dictatorship of the proletariat, right? <laughs> yeah. Without there having been a revolution. Without there ever being class conflict, which is nice. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> yeah I don't know. I did like, I will say, I'll read their de- definition of agroecology. We probably should have done this at the beginning, but what they say is, and this is in one of the footnotes, they say there are many terms that complement but are not identical to ag- agroecology, including permaculture, biodynamic, organic, regenerative, or ecological farming. And then blah, 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 blah. Um, here we will simply stress that one strength of agroecology conceptually is its focus on integrating three aspects mentioned above, practice, science, and movement as well as its emphasis on closing both ecological and economic loops in agri-food systems, okay, while striving for a continual improvement of process on farm and system-wide. And I guess this is, you can kind of see why a lot of what they, you know, their theory for how this all came about is just co-ops, right? It's like, hey man, have enough co-ops and then the co-op replaces the corporation seamlessly. It's like the magic trick where you like pull a you know, like a tablecloth out from like a, you know, well-decorated set table. It's like, it just happens. But I don't know. I really do appreciate the phrase though, because as we talked about when we've done our uh, Murray Bookchin episodes, the differences between ecology and environmentalism are ones that we all need to think about. And so you can't just think about farming uh, environmentally friendly, man. You got to think about, well, what should you be eating living in zone 6B or whatever? Like, should you be eating meat at all times? Should you be eating, you know, uh, I don't know, what's something that I that I probably shouldn't be eating? Uh, I don't know. I eat a lot of peanut butter. I would imagine peanuts don't really grow around this part of England. You know what I mean? Like, so it's, it's a way of thinking about incorporating yourself into the broader food system. And in that way, it is very reminiscent of Bookchin or even um, Jason Moore, really. Yeah, one of yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, one of the things it did make me think about is the question of scale in agriculture. I know we've already touched on it already, but like the question, maybe not just agriculture, but the the question of appropriate scale for different types of industry, I suppose, and then what kinds of um, connecting networks you can have. Um, uh, I've sometimes fallen into the trap maybe of thinking of um, communism of sort of like celebrating the large productive scale of um, contemporary capitalism, I suppose, of having brought people together into one um, networked productive process. And then the step toward communism is kind of like taking over that um, and making it a conscious direction of the economy rather than what we presently have, which is one that's sort of like unconscious, which is directed through the relationship with the commodity rather than one which is like uh, a deliberate act of uh, uh, like self-conscious producers, I suppose. Um, but there are some ways in which that question of scale actually needs to go in the opposite direction. Like capitalism has an appropriate scale for the production of food, but it's um not the human scale that we need to have happen to meet the challenges of climate change but then just just to generally be able to produce food in appropriate manner um so it sort of brought up questions of like um sort of beery and cybernetic planning even to say like what is the right sort of like um size of a node what would be the right size of a viable system um how would the viable system of the farm fit into a broader uh structure for agricultural 
um, production. Um, and I think this is quite a nice outline of that. And then the other thing that I really liked about it and I thought was reminiscent of things we've read in the past, sort of systems theory things that we've read in the past, um, is the um, forms of networking that are going on between different producers. Um, and the one in particular was sort of like the communication of information um sort of the sharing of ideas and then also even it even makes sense i know it sounds like one of these sort of the salian um elements but in a sort of like uh under some kind of communist government you might want to see this happen of like there being some kind of government bureau of no dig farming that you can ring up and be like yes the what people's do I do commissar with... of no dig farming <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we all know that <laughs> I get that man a hat mm. <laughs> um, that you would ring up and be like, okay, we've got this problem. Or like the, the connection between like research and education, sort of formal education through school and through university and prioritizing this kind of like knowledge dissemination and like, um, uh, yeah, I don't know. Putting the system yeah. to work to meet a challenge yeah, is There's... well outlined here. Yeah, definitely. And there's getting the system to work for you, right? And there's uh-huh. there's one um, one of those little cartoons at the beginning of Brain of the Firm, I think, is Stafford Beer says that help, one of the main tenets of like his cybernetics is that help always has a name and a face. And that comes up actually explicitly in this, where they say, you know, the local food person who manages like distribution or like manages, facilitates communication between farms and what they call food hubs, right? Um you know, he's like, her, her name is Sylvia or something like that. And she's great. She's just so great. <laughs> and it's kind of like funny, ho-ho, not cringe, but it's just like a little kind of goofy like moment in the text that feels throwaway, but it's absolutely not. It's like when we're thinking about the ways in which we produce and the ways that we communicate with each other, you, you know, help does need to have a name and a face because otherwise it's just going to be this alienated body that sits away from you that you know nothing about. And it's like when he's talking about the Bible system, Stafford Beer talks a lot about how when people have tried to introduce it, they have kind of messed up because they haven't made it clear what the auditors do to the workers. And if you make it clear to the workers or whoever, you know, whatever Bible system is being audited by the meta system, that these auditors are just here to make sure, you know, everybody's communicating with each other and they all know what they're doing, you know, production control, et cetera, et cetera, that they're just a tool to be used and not something that like comes in and messes with people. Um, that's like really vitally important. And I, I was actually like pleasantly surprised to see it come up here, this idea that, you know, you know, the milk I'm drinking comes from, comes from Patrick down the street or something <laughs> like that. Like that was a very funny uh, thing in here, but it, it's like, to a certain extent, it makes sense. It's funny it's like, for a cow. Yeah. It comes from Patrick, the cow, you know, put a glass under, underneath her, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but yeah, it's, it's vitally important. This idea that like everybody kind of at least knows where their food is coming from and they know who is managing their food. And it is not this alienated body of like, you know, Charles Dowding, people's commissar of the no-till food operation, who you call when you see somebody digging manure into their soil, right? It's like, you know these people, you know what they're doing, you know their roles, and once the system is all demystified, uh, it functions a lot better. And it sounds hippy-dippy, but it's important, you know? Yeah. Well, it sounds like overcoming commodity fetishism. That's what it sounds like. Yeah, so yeah. Would... but also like the fetishism of the system too, right? Of like, mm. what the fuck do these people do? Why do they need a tithe or whatever? Like, presumably there's no tithe. You're just producing for what you're 
community needs, I guess. But yeah. Um, should we should we talk a bit about uh, the ways that they talk about meat and eating meat? Um, I'm interested to kind of hear what you you think about this as a long tenured uh, militant vegan one who's fought <laughs> the struggle many times. Um, what did, what did you make of the way that they talk about people eating meat and people not eating meat? I mean, I've come to think of it as um, well. Somebody once pointed this out to me, actually, sort of as a sort of like. Uh, counter argument to the simple vegan argument of like we could feed so many more people if everybody if we just stopped producing meat if we stopped wasting land to produce grain to feed cows and rather than that just sort of like use that land to grow um food for human plant broad beans food broad (laughs) beans indeed for human consumption um and we were we were out in the field somewhere i think it was ran into somebody on a walk and he sort of like pointed out how all of the fields around us were producing whatever corn or something but they were just sort of the same horrible mono mono cropped fields using the big ag methodology that we were just describing before um which yeah which sort of struck struck a chord with me i think and i've been thinking about it recently in terms of whether i would like to see a vegan world based upon food production methodologies contemporary food production methodologies or whether i would like to see what they're presented in this paper a largely meatless world which is not strictly vegan obviously i would take the the agroecological uh model where um sort of like meat production is incorporated into a uh holistic sustainable um i don't know organic system on a farm where you have some amount of meat production and it's incorporated sort of you have animals that are tilling the soil you use you have animals that graze a piece of land one year and fertilize it and then you grow things there the next year kind of thing um it makes sense it won't it wouldn't um diminish my ethical qualms around eating meat but that's something for me to make an ethical choice about and to advocate for if i so please i suppose um but i'm not turned off by the promise of a world in which people eat a small amount of meat once a week or something yeah i mean that's what they say right they say that people eat meat once a week and it's like well that's just the way it's always been like that's how people have always ate meat right like this idea that like you know peasants you know feudal peasants were eating meat every night just like us you know they're eating steaks and hamburgers and all the shit it's like no you ate meat like on sundays or something like that and then for the rest of the time you just ate you know uh not meat everything else i guess and it's interesting because it gets into this idea that like i don't know you can have you can very much have a very healthy diet and kind of like i would maybe say like a very natural diet with you know, having a very small amount of meat in your diet. And um, we talked about this a little bit when we read Social Contagion, because they bought up how people really only started eating meat in China once they started to move to the big cities and these big cities sprang up. And then all of a sudden you have these duck farms that are like gone for as far as the eye can see. And, you know, a new strain of COVID is popping out every week because the pigs are next to the ducks and the the ducks are next to the wild ducks and all of this stuff. Um, So they really do advocate for like, something of a return to what you could see as a 
natural diet for humans. And I also really liked the idea here about, I'd never come across this idea before about eating less meat in the summer because you just have much more food available. And they're like, we really only eat a lot of meat when it comes to like the winter and even a lot of meat. Like, what's that, right? Because you're not growing as many broad beans, I guess, uh, during the winter. Though my broad beans are all in, so they're not actually just flowering, I guess. But um, yeah, it's an interesting idea. I mean, people... It, it's so mystified now because it's like the amount of meat that people eat is not natural and it's not healthy. And so something like this, which is just returning to what people have kind of always done. Like if you, you see a lot of like soul food or things like that, like, you know, food that has been food customs that have been around since before colonialism or capitalism have taken hold and moved people into cities and stuff like that. Um, there's not a lot of meat in it. Not a lot of meat really at all. Right. That's why you have your Sunday roasts and you eat your lamb or whatever. So I don't know. I was, I was kind of happy with this, but then you're right. It does get into the, the ethical question because that's not really raised at all. And if you don't eat meat because it's like, yeah, you just don't want to like slaughter a bunch of animals that are just looking at you. Like, what did I do, man? I'm just kind of trying to hang out and till your soil and, you know, give you some manure. That's a different question. And I've often wondered when we create a more kinder loving world where there is you know, much better, healthier and sustainable and ecological food production if people would eat, if people would be more comfortable eating meat or less comfortable. And I've always thought much, much less comfortable because there's the cow, you know, oh, it just had a baby. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, you sure you want to eat that tonight? But maybe that's just, maybe that's me, Dan, doing a double negative and being so mystified by the system that that would make it more comfortable for, for me to eat meat. You know what I mean? So- I guess this is something that we're going to have to find out. <laughs> yeah, I suppose there's an extent to which in this essay, they kind of present meat consumption as being in some ways a practical necessity for what they're presenting um, on the grounds of what I was saying about like um, incorporating animals into uh, sustainable farming. But also, as you were pointing out, yes, as a necessary like calorie reserve for those times when... Um, eating seasonally doesn't necessarily yield all the calories that you might need um i mean i think we could probably overcome that if we wanted to it has also made me think about my own eating i've been thinking about my own eating a little bit anyway um whether i should be spending more money which i don't really have on or a great using a greater proportion of my meager income to spend on buying foods that i can buy local vegetables or whether i should just continue to go to the supermarket and buy the same things that I always do. Um, there was a nice little vignette in this actually about somebody who going to the supermarket and just buying whatever's cheap or letting the supermarket decide what they buy kind of thing. I think they were alluding toward buying junk food or whatever, but it did remind me that that is in a lot of cases what I do. I buy the things that are seem most practical or most expedient or cheapest or whatever. Um, but extending that to like my veganism, that would be an even more difficult transition to transition my veganism into local eating probably um not that we should we should probably clarify that this text doesn't demand 100 percent localism when it comes to the food system you know they have a few little throwaway things about like um drinking coffee and obviously we didn't grow the coffee beans and there is some some amount of global um trade and they do celebrate globalism in a lot of ways um particularly for the movements of people and the effect on culture and that kind of thing. Um, so it's not like regressive in its outlook in any way. And they do speak on more large scale practical terms of 
countries that couldn't possibly feed themselves although at, at their present population predicated on their current access to arable land i suppose um so some countries would continue to have to just be food exporters and some countries would have to be food importers and that would just have to be something that was written into incorporated into um the global agricultural system but one which was done uh logically and consciously rather than the the way they present it in this text as happening in the present day where like um a huge amount of export and import is happening entirely unnecessary and for reasons that you can't really fathom why why you would go to the supermarket and buy something that was seasonal to where you are but it's been imported and and that thing that's green grown locally has actually been exported to somewhere else kind of thing um so they do consider these quite a lot but um yeah that's yeah. always the one example isn't it of like people who write papers like this it's like well i like coffee and i'm not going to give it up definitely an academic <laughs> yeah exactly yeah i mean that this just raises the question of how you can organize all of this stuff right and more importantly how are you going to incentivize all of these changes to happen how are you going to incentivize people moving out of cities how are you going to incentivize people dispersing how are you going to incentivize people working on farmland um and again, that's why I think a lot of this without a proper explanation of all of that just kind of felt like collapse. And I mean, the fundamental, say what you will about the, well, the fundamental principles model is awesome and we love it and it's great. And this idea of producing purely for utility is one that's extremely important. But when it comes to food production, there's a little bit of a wrinkle, right? Because it's like, it's a little bit trickier to get over that hump of the increased amount of labor, as we were saying, that would go into a just ecological food system. And also like, yeah, how you would incentivize people to do that and how you'd prioritize it because the fundamental principles model, I don't think, it, I think it would just kick it back to the cascading system of democratic councils, right? Which may well be how it works, but I would perhaps want some, maybe my incentive structures to be a little bit better than just kick it back to the councils, man. Maybe that's how it would work in the long run, but how you actually get there without some kind of mass disaster, because they bring up Japan, right, as this extremely densely populated place on an island with not the greatest soil, you're going to need a lot of people to feed them. And if you're a schmuck in Canada, as they were, you know, why are you going to be like, why am I going through all of this backbreaking labor to grow all of this grain and beans for people way over there? Is it actually getting there? I don't really know. Um so yeah, how, Nintendos, it'll be fine. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Give us a new Mario game and then we'll, you know, we'll trade that for a grain. Um, but yeah, it's interesting questions and ones that obviously aren't fleshed out here, but maybe you wouldn't expect them to be fleshed out because it's a discussion paper or whatever. But more important than I would say on one hand, you're relying on the government, more important than on the other hand, the democratic system of councils, man. It's funny, isn't it? Because um Sometimes when their answer is we just educated people and then they lobbied the government and then the government relented, I want to roll my eyes, obviously. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, some amount of uh, trusting in people, some amount of educating people is fundamental to any vision of a transition away from capitalism and toward uh, socialism or communism. Um and having some kind of scaled decision-making system for disseminating, I don't know, direction and planning and what have you, um, needs to continue to exist. So there's sort of description of 
a state isn't necessarily problematic, nor is there perhaps, I suppose, a description of um, a more educated, active, active interventionist population, I suppose. Um, but it's just how you connect A to B to C, which is, I suppose, the criticism we've been making, um, either through revolution or collapse or process. Or I don't know, or through or through utopian process, process of utopian whatever. Yeah, yeah, I'm not sure. Very big question. I mean, they sketch a world that I would very much want to live in, right? It's just like, okay, well, getting there is kind of at least free what land. we're concerned free about. Land. Show. Free land, exactly. I also love the way they talk about agritourism. And I feel like that actually was another throwaway thing, but also very important because it's, you know, people are going to continue to live in cities to some extent and, you know, bringing those people around the farmlands or whatever and showing them, you know, you know, put your muck boots on or whatever and come out here and, you know, you know, pick the tops off of these broad beans. Otherwise we'll get black fly. It's, you know, a certain amount of that is good and it, it, it helps out with demystifying commodities and stuff like that. Um, one of the other extremely important things that comes up in this that we haven't talked about yet is maybe just because to our situation in England, it's uh, not as pressing, although maybe in your neck of the woods, actually, Dan, um, is this idea of kind of land back and of indigenous food rights and how how you relate to being a settler colonial state like Canada or like um, America and how that relates to food systems. Because one in, in, extremely important aspect of creating an agroecological world, right, is understanding the ways in which people had done this for many thousands of years prior. And obviously we want to create a level of a standard of living that is not technologically regressive, right? We, you know, we don't want to go back to any any other time. We want to keep pushing forward and take what we can from the past and move forward without giving up what we have. Um, but when it comes to what crops we should be growing, um, how we should be growing them, um, quite a bit needs to be relearned from, you know, in a place like Canada, from indigenous people and especially in the United States. Um, and that's kind of one of the ways in which they needed to talk about this because it's like kind of decolonizing the food system, I suppose, is a way of putting it, which sounds a little bit like something you would read on a poster at a university, but it's it's totally true, right? Like realistically, so much of this wisdom has been lost that you need to relearn it. And part of that is justice for people whose lives have been, you know, destroyed and their land taken from them for generations and generations and generations. And if you actually want to create a just food system, if you're living in a place like North America, you need to come to terms with that. Um, it was really interesting. It's really, really fascinating. And it just leads to the question, right? Of if you have any leftist friends who are, don't ever talk about land back or something like that, it's a bit cringe because it's like, I don't know, when does it become okay? You know what I mean? It's kind of the question that's raised in this reading about like, you need to come to terms with these questions sooner or later. And it is, you know, was it okay a hundred years ago? Do we not need to give land back uh, now because now it's okay? And, you know, all of these questions, but when does it actually become okay to be a settler colonial nation? And it's actually not something we've really talked about much on the show. Yes. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're quite right. And I suppose it's, I guess it's so easily overlooked in leftist circles, particularly if there's a focus on, um, economic class being the thing that unifies people and then overlooking all of those other um, um, identities which are very much rooted in history. They're not like an invented fiction, obviously. Um, not even a cultural invented fiction. They're a 
they are very much rooted in a history of oppression and colonialism that's tied into the development of capitalism itself. So um, the unpicking of capitalism is the coming to terms with those uh, crimes and atrocities and not just wishing them away or magicking them away with a communist wand, I suppose. (laughs) And it's one of the ways, one of the many ways in which something like permaculture is a bit cringe is because Uh it's, my understanding is that it's to a certain extent now a product that people sell you about how can we live properly, right? To say nothing of the actual practices of permaculture. It's the the idea behind it is how can we live, you know, at one and produce things ecologically or whatever. And then these people go to like, you know, from America to Guatemala and they start to tell people all about how they should be growing their food. And they're like, bro, the only reason we grow our food like this now is because you fucked everything up. And now we only grow bananas, <laughs> right? And we have to import all of our food. So yeah, and just to say that like, um, yeah, coming coming to terms with settler colonial pasts and um, you know, and what that did to our food systems is a, is a vital part of this. And as you say, it is not just class. So yeah, and but it, I don't know. Treat that as not something to feel like necessarily guilty about. Treat that as something that's exciting because it's like there is legitimately so much that we can learn from going back to like where I'm from. It's Chumash land, right? And the ways in which the Chumash um, produce their food, it's so killer because it's like when we read the um, Marshall Salins, the Chumash people would spend like several hours a week getting the food that they needed. And it would be like lobster and sea bass and acorns and like all of this like amazing food, right? So treat it as something that's exciting because learning about this stuff is, it's upsetting and it's depressing that so much of this has been lost, but it's also so cool. You know what I mean? So it's like, wow, this is the way, this is the way that they did it. And obviously we're not just going to be, you know, technologically regressing to that point, but you know, it's all very important. I I mean, like um, colonially driven expansion of capitalism into the world has screwed over um, and destroyed sort of like so many different ways of life all over the place. But it's also like, destroyed the lives of the the ways people live uh in the western world as well in in europe in europe like um there's not just the i suppose the reduced quality of food but also like the variety in some ways is um in some ways what you can buy under capitalism is expansive but actually your ability to consume is constricted by your ability to buy right um, we could actually have a much more varied diet than we do under capitalism under a different mode of production. Um, so there are advantages for us all, and capitalism has um, maybe not wrought the same havoc in all of all the parts of the world, but it has certainly, um, I don't know, there's, there are things to be overcome about it that would be beneficial to us. I guess. Yeah, just to say nothing of just being healthier and feeling oh, better. Yeah, yeah, Tell you yeah. what, I had a goddamn greasy, greasy ass veggie burger for dinner last night, and then because I'm an idiot, I went and had a greasy ass veggie burger for lunch, and I feel like shit. And the only reason I had it is because a last night I went out to dinner and it was the cheapest thing on the menu, and I was like, okay, get this. And then where I work, there's like a meal deal at the moment to help with the cost of living, and I was like, okay, I'll, I'll get this. And boy, I feel like crap. If you could actually produce food that's like healthy and good, I'm all for it because. Uh, yeah, Greece, man. What are you gonna do? Yeah. Um, I'm I'm, eating, I'm living in Cornwall now. I'm eating far too many pasties. <laughs> Land back Cornwall, Dan. That's one thing <laughs> we need to talk about. Um, the only other thing to to bring up, I think, is I was maybe this is just because I 
this is an aesthetic I didn't realize that I really like, but the ways that they talk about using technology on farms and using technology to communicate between farmers and all of this different stuff while everybody is engaged in what we kind of view to be now is this very like kind of old timey activity, which is like being engaged in your own food production. I just thought was so cool because uh, obviously, right, when you hear the kind of techno neo-feudalist crowd talk about how everything's going back to feudalism, man, that's absurd because, you know, Marx would say that you'd actually have to technologically regress to get back to a, a, a point where everything is produced as rents, right? But now like seeing this view of like everybody being engaged in food production with like cool gadgets and you know everybody being engaged in like furthering the general intellect which is you know how do we produce better things how do we do this should we use imo2 oh my god i just came up with this thing you know i just thought was like maybe it again it's just an aesthetic that i like but i thought that was fucking cool <laughs> that's really why we read this is for the aesthetic yeah <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah. It's definitely a vision of the future where everybody has a vegetable garden and, um, I don't know, it's at least engaged in some way or other in food production, which yeah. would be no bad thing. Would be no bad thing. I am I am all for it. And yeah, I would suggest people read this, I think, just because if maybe this is just like a stab in the dark at what the uh, division, getting rid of the division between town and country looks like, maybe it's just something that's fun to read. But um, it's useful every now and then to read things like this that are utopian in their uh, understandings of the world and that are looking to create a new vision of the future. Part of that is a bit problematic because that's their strategy, right? Is that they, if we just convince the farmers, if we give them enough utopian fiction, the farmers will be like, okay, fine, we'll ignore the value for them and we'll just, we'll do small production and food sovereignty, right? But, you know, you need a vision of the future that you're working towards that isn't just dictatorship of the proletariat, right? So I dug it. I would say everyone should read this just because it's cool. <laughs> Mm -hmm. yeah why not and um like as you say we fed before it cures some of the doomerism that sometimes comes from reading some of, of these things so yeah why going not? from like henrik grossman and capitalism in the web of life and the french revolution to this i think was ne necessary <laughs> <laughs> yeah to be refreshed um i tell you what dan on another note um when we read the Gerard Wynn Stanley and he was, we gave him a hard time about, you know, all of his people going to the hill or whatever and digging and manuring and digging and manuring because we were like, you shouldn't be digging Gerard Wynn Stanley. Where's your compost? <laughs> um, I was recently gifted a very large amount of uh, horse manure and I've let it rot down a little bit. And I just, man, I just put that kind of, I did dig it into my soil. And I just loosened it up. Oh my God, dude, everything is growing so well. It's insane. It's like, obviously it would be better to do no till, but like manure. This is me rediscovering something from like the very recent past. It helps. It helps plants a lot. <laughs> Imagine that. It's very good for them. My beans are just like going insane. To say nothing mm. of the like 90 garlic bulbs that I've planted, which I don't really know why I did that. But <laughs> Yes. Look after your soil, everybody. That's yeah. a parting piece of wisdom. <laughs> yeah yeah and get engaged in food production in some way even if you just have access to a little teeny weeny like two foot by two foot plot of soil uh grow something because it's fun and you can easily grow potatoes and you can easily grow onions and garlic and what more do you need that's what i say broad beans and broad of course yeah broad <laughs> beans yeah my dad recently was like how do you eat your broad beans and i was like i don't know <laughs> i was like just I grow just, them I just all right with, yeah exactly i was like i grow them and then i save the seeds to grow them again next year all right 
you're breeding your perfect strain of broad bean. <laughs> I am. I'm getting there. Yeah. Investment as a future. Yeah. That actually just made me realize that I did not label which ones I planted where because I planted two varieties. But when have I been known to ever plant things, you know, <laughs> in a straight line or labeled? When you're gonna do That's or, why even, or even together in the same bed. <laughs> yeah, indeed. That's why I have like three celery plants and they're all at diametrically opposite corners of the allotment. <laughs> Uh dear. All right. Well, visions of the food system to come, agriculture, eating, and ecological injustice in 2050. Brian Dale, Matilda DePerry, Madeline Frechette, and Hannah Clemenson gets a... Why not? Read it from us, I'd say, because it's uh, fun. So I don't have any parting thoughts. Um, I've enjoyed this very much, Dan, and uh, looking forward to what we get up to next time, because I've got no idea, actually. Maybe <laughs> yeah, we will find out together. <laughs> it's an ongoing adventure that we're talking about. Yeah, thank you for doing this again, Jack. Thanks everybody for listening. Goodbye. We'll see you uh, next time. The music you heard this episode was Music to Kill Bad People To by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. If you like this song, you can check it out and much, much more on their bandcamp at kinggizzard.bandcamp.com. Be sure and follow us up on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you like what you heard, be sure and tune in next week for some more commie discussion. Till next time. Whoa.